So please open the word of God once again to the letter of 1 Peter. And we're returning to chapter 2 this morning. In verses 11 and 12, last week we saw Peter telling us we must live out a life of excellence. Behave. Let your behavior be excellent. Why? Well, so that others will see your life and they will become thirsty for your God. Thirsty for a relationship with him. And the excellent behavior that Peter has described in verse 12, or he has at least mentioned, that is now going to be described more explicitly in these following verses. Here in verse 13 through 17, he's going to talk about how to live with excellent behavior towards civil authorities. And then from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, he's going to be talking about with respect to our masters, even those that are cruel to us, that don't treat us right, and then with respect to our behavior in the home in chapter 3, and so on. And if you've been following everything Peter said to this point in this letter, I think one thing is plain, and that is that Christians are different, and Christians ought to live different, because we are different. According to Peter, Christians are not to be like everyone else, because we're to follow Jesus. We have a unique faith and hope we saw in chapter 1. We serve a unique God who has given us a, a unique calling to be uniquely like Him. And we are to live out our unique Christian life before the watching world so that others will be drawn to this one who makes us so unique. Well, today we're going to examine another way in which we as Christians are different. And it has to do with our our response to our government, regardless of whatever the culture is doing and saying. So let's stand for respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask our Lord to speak to us today from his word. Our Father, our Almighty King, we come to you this morning and we bow before you, we yield ourselves to you. I pray that if there would be anything, any attitude, any uh, behavior, anything that would prevent anyone here from hearing what it is your spirit desires to tell them right now, I just pray, Lord, would you give them grace, would you give us grace as your people to give that over to you, to yield to you right now because you are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. And Father, we need to hear from you this morning. You know, we live in a very unjust and very corrupt society. And we have even authorities that you have sovereignly placed over us that do not respect you. And many times do not respect even life itself and what is right. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us as your people grace as we desire to hear your word, prepare hearts, and we pray Lord, that you would tell us exactly what it is we must do. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. 
a man was on vacation and he was strolling alongside his hotel in Acapulco, Mexico, enjoying the sunny Mexican weather. And that's when suddenly he was attracted by the screams of a woman and she was kneeling in front of a child. Well, a crowd began to gather and the man knew enough Spanish to determine that the child had swallowed a coin. And seizing the child immediately by the heels then, the man held him up and gave him a few shakes. And an American quarter dropped to the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, cried the woman. You seem to know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? No, ma'am, replied the man. I am with the United States Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> the IRS. They know how to shake the money out of you. <laughs> we understand. The IRS knows how to collect our money, right? Even down to the last cent. And most people I've talked to about the IRS, those kind of conversations, end up you know, reflecting that people don't usually view or think fondly of the IRS. In fact, there are some, even Christians, that might be tempted to say things like, I'm not paying taxes. I'm not paying any more taxes to this corrupt government. It's so corrupt. I'm not giving any more of my money to those crooks. But that's not a Christian response to civil government. In one of the most famous works of Western literature titled City of God, Augustine, back in his time, explained that while Christians are ultimately citizens of the heavenly city of God, yet we currently live in the earthly city of man. And the real genius of Augustine's city of God has to do with how he describes the complex relationship between our responsibility to God as his citizens and our present responsibilities to our civil authorities. It's the complex relationship between church and the culture. It's the idea that just because we're citizens of another kingdom, that doesn't mean we're alleviated from any responsibility to Caesar. Jesus would say, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. But remember now, in verses 11 and 12, Peter's just told us we are aliens and strangers in this present world. Presumably, if Peter had stopped right there, we might be tempted to think, well, you know what? I have zero responsibility to any president, any government on this earth, because I'm just an alien and a stranger. But Peter goes on to say Christians do have civil responsibilities. We have civil duties to fulfill. And I understand that the subject of civil obedience isn't as popular today as the subject of civil disobedience. In fact, I'd imagine many Christians who come to this text and read about submission to human authorities want to springboard off this subject to the exception. We want to talk about when civil disobedience is necessary. Well, we will address that somewhat, but don't miss Peter's primary focus in these verses. As a Christian, he's saying God commands you to obey your civil authorities. As a Christian, God commands you to obey your civil authorities. The Bible is quite clear. Our civil obedience is not without any qualification. And, and this is not easy. God knows that. I think that Peter is anticipating that. And so in this text, Peter really endeavors to share the heart behind God's command for your civil obedience. 
And in moving through verses 13 through 17, I want to show you three reasons that God commands, here according to this text, God commands your civil obedience. First, we see your civil obedience pleases the Lord. Your civil obedience pleases the Lord. The first reason here for civil obedience has to do with understanding the moral basis for such obedience. Peter says in verse 17, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are to obey civil authorities because this is what God desires. Now Peter can only command subjection to every human institution because he knows the Lord himself has appointed the powers that be. God is sovereign after all. And by saying submit yourselves to every human institution, Peter's including any human authority, any civil authority structure in our society. So this would include parents over children or teachers over students or law enforcement workers over civilians or government leaders over citizens and so on. Peter is talking about every human institution. If you want to know how Peter can say this with so much certainty, just listen to what the Bible says in Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Peter is, of course, he's, he's talking about human institutions here. He says human institutions. So we can say these are just the institutions of man. But that doesn't deny that God originally established them. God is presiding over them. God is the one who's ultimately established the civil authorities in your life. In fact, God is the one that we're told in Romans 13, 4, that appointed government as his minister. Government is said to be a minister of God for your good. Just think of it that way. God has a positive plan for government. Now, being the Americans we are, we're, we're probably thinking, or someone's thinking, there's got to be a catch to this, though. Come on, I mean, uh, we're not supposed to do just whatever our government says, right, Pastor? There's, there's got to be some exception here, and, and that is true. The Bible teaches that civil authority is not without its limitation. This should be qualified. There is an exception to the rule, but you see, we want to jump to the exception, don't we? And this morning, we really need to wrestle with the weight of the rule itself, because there is a rule here. Peter doesn't ask how you feel about this. He just gives you an imperative. He says, submit yourselves. That means place yourselves under every human institution, your civil authorities, the, the powers that be, whether you like the particular ruling party or not, whether the, the one that God is placing you under here is just or not. You may even say that he or she is evil, but Peter writes, submit yourselves. The Bible indicates God is no fan of tyrants who oppress the weak. You'll remember even from the account of taking his people out of Egypt. God is about freeing the oppressed. And yet, at the same time, as Peter is writing this, we need to remember that Peter was writing at a time when Nero was emperor. And Nero was no saint. Nero was a monster. And yet Peter can say, submit yourselves to every human institution for the Lord's sake. So for all the corruption in civil government, the fact of civil government, the very general fact of authority itself, that's not a negative concept. Don't ever get that idea. There was authority 
there was a government structure before the world ever came under the curse of sin. We see that God establishes uh, even a government structure in the angelic realm. Even God within his own being intrinsically demonstrates an authority structure. God the Father over the Son, over the Spirit. So authority is not an intrinsically evil concept. Government is not an intrinsically bad thing for all the abuses that men make of it. And Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do right. Please notice, it's like Peter's indirectly acknowledging God's good design in government. What is God designed for government to do? Well, to punish evildoers and to praise those who do what's right. Now, I know there's corruption in our government. And, it, and by the way, if you don't think so, <laughs> uh, well, you need to be enlightened, okay? You're a little naive. Yeah, there, there's, there's corruption in every government. There's certainly corruption in ours. But the fact of the matter is that for all the corruption in our government, we should be thankful because we can still call 911. And I'm sure you've done that at some time. Or you have that security that you can fall back on. Government leaders to help in a time of crisis. We should be thankful that our government at least still honors the selfless sacrifice of some, such as our veterans. For all the corruption, there's still a punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. In other words, don't let the corruption that is in the government so sour your response to the government that you will not honor what God says you must honor this morning. God wants you to know even a bad government is better than no government. Just read the book of Judges. And as Christians, we probably ought to be doing twice as much praying for those in authority and half the complaining. So Peter commands subjection to every human institution because he knows the Lord has appointed the powers that be. But the fact Peter commands our subjection to every human institution for the Lord's sake also implies something else. That the Lord has authority over the powers that be. He doesn't say, do this for me. Do this for Caesar's sake or for some governor's sake or for your own sake. He says, do this for the Lord's sake. And that's implying your ultimate boss is Jesus Christ. That's your Lord. That's why you ought to submit to authorities because this pleases your Lord. And he's your ultimate boss in verse 16, Peter says, well, actually, Peter reaffirms the idea before that, verse 15, by saying, for such is the will of God. For the Christian, that's the ultimate question. Not what does the government want, not what do you want. What is the will of God? And he's telling you here. Then in verse 16, Peter says, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. You see, God is your ultimate authority. He's over all authorities. And because God is the one telling you to submit yourself to civil authority, you'd better do so for the Lord's sake. So God's telling us, be subject to civil authorities. But what if our government demands that you do something which God says is not lawful, which God says is not right? Well, we're not left to wonder. We aren't left in a dilemma there. The conflict that we could raise occurred at the very start of Christ's church in Acts 4, we read about it, where Peter and John had just healed a man in the name of Jesus and then began preaching in that same name. And so in Acts 4, 18, we read that the Jewish Sanhedrin summoned them 
and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is happening in governments around our world. You can go on believing as you do, but you can't do so publicly. You can't preach or teach in that name. Well, that's what they told these men. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They said, we cannot pretend to deny reality. We live in God's world. And if you want to go on saying that we should obey you rather than God, then you, you judge us accordingly. You see, navigating the right course that is pleasing to God, or between pleasing God and civil authorities, between civil obedience and disobedience, isn't really a complicated matter. Even when civil authorities go against God, the matter is simple. It's not complicated at all. As a Christian, you know where your allegiance lies, but that's where things simply get costly. But we're not focusing on civil disobedience this morning because the text isn't really emphasizing that. It's emphasizing civil obedience. And just so we're clear, I, I, I do want to be clear that Peter is not saying your responsibility to government, though, is absolute. It's unqualified. Of course, no human authority is absolute. Why? Because it's delegated by God. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. When the, when the day comes that our government demands from us something that is unlawful, or they demand our disobedience to God, then it is our duty to show them just where our ultimate loyalty lies. That our, that our loyalty to government is true, but it, it only goes so far as God himself will allow, no more and no less. Peter wants you to know your civil obedience pleases the Lord, though. It pleases the Lord, provided you are obeying those authorities for his sake. But a second reason that God commands your civil obedience from this text is your civil obedience exalts the Lord. This second reason for civil obedience has to do with God's intended outcome for such obedience. Verses 15 and 16 here give two outcomes of our civil obedience that exalt the Lord. First, your civil obedience exalts the Lord by silencing the slander of his name. Look at verse 15. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We might wonder, what is this ignorance of foolish men? But if we remember back to verse 12, Peter acknowledges that his Christian readers are right now being slandered as Christians. They're being slandered as evildoers for the sake of Christ. And this is what Peter means here in verse 15 by the ignorance of foolish men. It's this slander of Christians as evildoers. And we're not talking about those TV preachers, those guys out there that are hustling people for money, those crooks, those shysters. No, that, that's evil. There's nothing Christian about that. The, you know, those people... There's plenty of people doing evil in the name of Christ, but those people are getting exactly what they deserve. This situation that we're talking about here, this ignorance of foolish men being hurled at these Christians, the slander of these Christians as evildoers, it is simply for the fact that they are Christians. This is what some Christians today are experiencing. Because we believe in one truth, we are slandered as intolerant bigots. Because we believe... In one truth. Because we believe in the unborn child's right to life, we are slandered as haters of women. 
because we believe in the sanctity of marriage, we are slandered as homophobic or even at times haters of homosexuals. And we could go on. The bottom line is all this slander is ultimately not aimed at us, is it? It's aimed at God. And that is because we didn't write the Bible. We didn't invent the institution of marriage. We didn't come up with the idea of one truth. And to slander these things is really to slander God himself above all. Like Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know this, it hated me before it hated you. Another way to say that is, it hates you because it hates me. We just bear the reproach of Christ. And so Peter here calls this slander ignorance. It's ignorance. It's the ignorance of foolish men because he's identifying this slander as ignorance of God's truth. And, and the subjects of this ignorance who slander, Christians as, who slander Christians, they are foolish. Not by the world's standards, but by God's standards. Because they are flying in the face of. They are disregarding God's wisdom. What God has said. Well, how should we deal with such ignorance? How do you deal with the ignorance of foolish men? Of course, we might, as Peter will go on to say in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, we might give a rational defense, an apologia, an apologetic for our faith. There is a time for that. But here he calls us to civil action. And I don't mean a protest. He's calling us to civil obedience. He's saying you live out a life of responsibility as a good citizen before your government, that that puts people to silence for the sake of Christ. Verse 15 says, submitting yourself to every governor. Yes, however evil a person he or she may be. He says this, such submission is the will of God, that by doing right, doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, this isn't just doing whatever our authorities say. It's doing the right thing because they're not asking us to do the wrong thing. We're doing what they say. We're humbling ourselves, and we're doing it for the purpose of putting to silence what they're saying about Christ, what they're saying about the Christian faith. Remember back in verse 12, Peter said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So verse 15 and verse 12 are saying much the same thing. That the way you live before others as a citizen in this world, yes, it has everything to do with your testimony for the sake of Christ, with the way other people think about Jesus Christ. And it's, it, it's really like verse 12 and verse 15 are saying the same thing from different angles. Verse 12 is saying in a positive way, if you live out your life before Jesus, Others will see your good deeds and they will glorify God. They, that's what will come out of their mouth. God will use this to their conversion. While verse 15 is saying, as others see your good deeds, their mouths will be stopped from speaking evil of the name of Christ. Last week I shared how in the 4th century, at a time of terrible plague and disorder, Christian citizens performed excellent behavior toward their pagan citizens, their, their fellow pagans, and they, um, they were uh, silencing by their behavior the slanders of these fellow citizens. And this exalted the name of Christ. Well, at that time, the emperor had made it his personal ambition to return the Roman government back to its pagan ancestral religion. This was Julian, who had, for that reason, earned the title Julian the Apostate. 
And Emperor Julian witnessed the conduct of these Christian citizens doing right, as Peter would describe here, doing right in the face of civil chaos and peril. And this behavior would so prompt him to lament that the impious Galileans, that was his word for Christians, relieve both their own poor and ours. And he added, it is shameful that ours, our people, should be so destitute of our assistance. He's saying we should live like the Christians. The Christian behavior, living for Christ, excellent citizenship in a society, reaching out to those in need, this closed the mouths of those who were blaspheming Christ. Your civil obedience exalts the Lord by silencing the slander of his name, but also your civil obedience, in verse 16 here, exalts the Lord by following Jesus' example of selflessness. You see, regardless of the outcome in society, God wants to produce an outcome in your life. He wants you to be like Jesus. And you're never more like Jesus than when you humble yourself and submit to those who aren't even always right. This is what Jesus did. Look at verse 16. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bondslaves of God. Peter's not talking to just anyone. He's talking to Christians. These are Christian readers. And he says to them, act as free men. Also, I can just do anything I want. Well, what does he mean by freedom? This freedom isn't a freedom from God's authority, first of all, because Peter says we are to act, he goes on to say, we are to act as bondslaves of God. We are servants of God. But God has set us free from this present world order. He said back in chapter 1, verse 18, that you were redeemed from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. So the freedom Peter is describing here is freedom from sin. It's freedom from the dominion of this present world ruled by sin. All right, well now notice, though we are free and we are to live as free people, yet Peter says, do not use your freedom. Ah, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Given how selfish we are, Peter knows that, that we naturally tend to take the freedom God has given us, our freedom in Christ, and just use it to live any way we want, regardless of what else anyone thinks. That would be a travesty. For instance, imagine a Christian refusing to pay his taxes because he's reasoning, well, you know what? I... Everything I have, everything I own, it belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to Caesar. It doesn't belong to the United States of America. So I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm just going to give God everything I have. I'm free from the law. I'm God's servant alone. Peter's saying that would be using your freedom to do wrong. As a guise, as a covering for evil. What Peter's doing is he's really echoing the teaching of Paul. Who said in 1 Corinthians 9.19, Though I am free from all men, yet... I have made myself a slave to all, that I may win more. Peter, saying, or Peter and Paul, we're agreeing here that while we are free from the world, God has sent us, like his son, back into the world that we may be humble, we may be submissive for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his name, selflessly serving others. A great example of this is really found in Matthew 17, I'm sure Peter never forgot it. In Matthew 17, we find that those who collected the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Well, Peter instinctively answered, yeah, of course. And Matthew tells us he went back into the house. Jesus first spoke to him saying, what do you think, Simon? 
Do kings collect taxes from their children or from their subjects? Peter said, from their subjects. And Jesus said, then their children are exempt, of course. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take out the first fish that comes to you. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel and take that and give it to them for you and for me. Jesus, in a most spectacular, memorable way, would teach Peter a lesson that though I am creator over all things, I own everything. Jesus created all people. Jesus' father rules the world. And Jesus, as the son of God, he doesn't owe the world a thing. He didn't owe the world a dime. But Jesus says, lest we offend them. Lest we cause them to stumble. Because they don't believe that. They don't understand that at this point. And so he's telling Peter, though we're free from all human authority, nevertheless, so we don't offend them, for the sake of the watching world, because of the fact they don't see it this way, let's pay the tax. Serve them. You're free, but don't use your freedom for yourself. Use it to serve God for his sake, for his glory. He says, use your freedom as bond slaves of God. Just because God has redeemed you doesn't mean that you can do and live anything you want, right? And I think of Jesus here in Philippians 2.5. What an example. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he was entitled to all the rights of heaven as God, yet he emptied himself. And taking upon himself the form of a bondservant, he was made in the likeness of men. Why? To serve. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. Uh, I didn't come to be served, Jesus said. I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Well, if Jesus would do that, who do we think we are? To say, no, I'm not going to serve others. I'm not going to serve the authorities in this world. We need to be servants. If you're a Christian, you see your civil obedience is not so much about yourself. It's not really about you. It's not about your justice, your rights. It's about your testimony. It's about your relationship with God and how others view your God. So that your good citizenship might attract others to your good Lord. So the next time you find yourself thinking, because I'm sure this will happen sometime, this government is so corrupt. I can't stand these people. I can't believe what's going on in Washington. And maybe you think this is just so unjust. Don't forget there's something more important than you getting justice. It's the Lord being glorified through your life by you following the example of Jesus Christ, his selflessness, his service to others. That exalts the Lord. Of course, it's not easy to submit to unjust rulers, but Peter's told us we must do so. Why? It pleases the Lord. We do it for his sake. That's the moral basis of all civil obedience. And of course, that qualifies our civil obedience. And we must obey even unjust rulers because our civil obedience exalts the Lord, we see. That's the practical outcome. That would, of course, explain why God is pleased. And we see this happening as, as others are put to silence, as they slander Jesus' name. They see our good citizenship. And even we are being made more like Jesus as we follow his selfless example. But now Peter supplies us with a brief summation of the whole matter. Look at verse 17. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. As one commentator put it, these four brief mottos summarize again the two commandments that fulfill the whole law. Love for God and love for our neighbor. 
And so I believe Peter's third reason for your civil obedience is essentially your civil obedience fulfills the law. Your civil obedience fulfills the law by fulfilling the great commandment. Verse 17 begins, honor all people, love the brotherhood. By these first two imperatives, Peter's basically saying your civil obedience is about fulfilling God's second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. Peter begins, honor all people. I love this statement because when you take it at face value, it steers us clear of all the hatred spewed by both sides on the political landscape. You know what I'm talking about? We're about to head into, we are heading into another election cycle. And as if it isn't bad enough already on the mass media, this is just a time when the rhetoric begins spilling over with emotionally charged insults and just tearing each other down. The gloves come off. Political rivals are at each other's throats again. And people are dividing, taking sides. But as Christians... Whatever your political viewpoint, the Bible is telling you as you enter this election cycle, honor all people. Honor all people. That is those that have a different political ideology that you can't stand. The instruction is needful for us because we can very easily become politically self-righteous to the extent that we dishonor and degrade and yes, even destroy people with our words. All in the name of justice and what is right and we don't have to pretend we agree with everyone Peter's certainly not telling us to do that that's what some people want us to do just just say you agree right no we don't do that that would be dishonest that's dishonest we, we don't want to pretend that the truth does not matter it does we must speak the truth but nevertheless just as Jesus could disagree with the rich young ruler. He could disagree with this man. He could tell him a hard truth. Jesus could also look at that same individual. The Bible says he looked upon him with love. And this is showing us we must not simply agree to disagree with those of a different political ideology, but we must love them. We must honor them. Give honor to all people. That's beautiful. Why? God says so. He says so right here. And he says so because he made them. They bear his image. All people bear his image and likeness regardless of their political viewpoint. Peter says, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. The word love here is the word agapao from the, the noun agape. This agape kind of love brings us back to chapter 1, verse 22, where we were called to fervently love one another from the heart. This is a selfless love. It's a choice, not a feeling. Of course, we are called to love all people. Somebody might say, well, we're called to love the brotherhood. We're only called to honor all people. But let's just be clear here. The Bible does say love your neighbor as yourself. The spirit of the law here, when he says honor all people, is to love all people. The Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. You remember that wise guy who said, well, just who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the story of the Good Samaritan. Which basically says, yeah, anyone you stumble across, that's your neighbor. Even if they're your enemy. Jesus straight up said, love your enemies. So I don't think we should distinguish between, oh, we have to love our brothers, but we don't love all people. No, that's not the idea here. We are certainly to love all people, including our enemies. But while we must love everyone, the second imperative really 
focuses in on love of the brotherhood. It's a special love that we have for the brotherhood. And this brotherhood isn't the general brotherhood of all mankind. He's talking about the brotherhood of saints. That is, believers in Jesus Christ, the household of faith, the church. I think what Peter has in mind is the sort of thing we see exemplified in the early chapters of Acts, where Christians in need were being received. They were being taken care of by other Christians. That all believers had all things in common. They were a true commune. They were a true family. I suspect Peter mentions this. This love for the brotherhood is necessary in the midst of our civil testimony. Why? Because he wants to stress how important it is that while our civil authorities know we should honor and love them, we should honor all people and love all people, they must know that we, we as brothers and sisters in Christ are a family. We have a unique identity that we share with one another. And you know how it is. Strong families benefit any civil society. So we ought to love the brotherhood. That's a beautiful testimony for the sake of Christ. Peter says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Over against the first two imperatives, the final two imperatives remind us of God's greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all our being. And this is because while we are commanded to fear God, we are not commanded to fear the king. We're not commanded to fear anyone. In fact, the Bible actually commands us not to fear any man. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who are able to kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. That would be mortal men. But rather fear him, capital H, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus was saying, fear God only. The fear of man brings a snare. Fear God. Put your trust in the Lord. Peter singles out God as the one to be feared because he knows your greatest allegiance must lie with God. God is the one, as he said in 1 Peter 1.17, he's the one to whom we will ultimately answer as our judge. And we can't serve two masters. There must be an ultimate supreme court. And he's saying that lies with God. He's ultimately the one you must fear. You must have no other gods before you. You must serve no other masters. We have one supreme love. Ultimately, it's to God. That's why we fear him. But as we fear God, and if we fear God, we will honor the king. You will honor the king. Peter's already said, honor all people. So why does he specify here at the end, honor the king? Well, I believe he's specifying this for the sake of the office. He's saying, honor all people. And the president, whoever's in office, that's a person. That's a human being that you need to honor. But you need to honor them also as the king, as the office that they hold. There's a special honor due the king per his kingly office. As Romans 13, 7 says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. You might say, but my president is evil. God says, regardless of who they are, regardless of, uh, of, of, the, of the evil they've done, so long as they're your president, you should honor them as such. Whatever you feel about this, Christian, as a Christian, God is commanding you to obey your civil authorities. Maybe there's an area in your life, as we've been going through this text, 
where you would identify that you're not obeying the law. I mean, civil laws. Perhaps someone is cheating on their taxes. You say, you know, I've just not been honest with the IRS. You know, that's not just an issue with the IRS. That's an issue with God. We need to take this seriously. Maybe there's some other area of some violation of some law. Let me encourage you. God put these authorities over in your life, Peter's saying. And if you want to please him, if you want to exalt him, you must humble yourself and make things right with your authorities. This is right. I didn't say that. God did. As a church now, as a community in this world, who ultimately is subservient to our king of kings, we need to make sure our behavior as citizens in this country is excellent. Because it's an excellent opportunity. We have an awesome opportunity every day we live as citizens in this nation to demonstrate an excellent testimony for Jesus Christ by our obedience to civil authorities. We can draw others to Jesus in this way. I think of one example during the pandemic, our church had the opportunity to partner with New York State Contact Tracing, and there were families that had to quarantine because of the virus, and, and so they had requested help with groceries, and our church was able in this area. We had a, a wide area, uh, different townships, that we were able to service purchasing groceries and delivering them to families in need. That's an excellent testimony. That's one way that we could be good citizens and be a good example for the sake of Christ. Now, there are other things we need to do as a church, as a community. So when we get together and we say, let's serve the community, let's do this, there's a biblical basis for doing that. Even if the point of our service isn't an explicit evangelism outreach. And when we do that, when we present opportunities as a church, you do what you can to be a part of it, to be a good citizen for the sake of Christ. I'm sure there are many other applications, but I just want to finally conclude by saying if anybody listening would say, Pastor, you know, pray for me. I'm not sure I belong to the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that when I die, I will enter into the kingdom. I'm not sure that Jesus is my king and savior. Well, uh, if that's you, I don't, I'm not going to humiliate you or, or shame you or anything like that, but please let me know because I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to open the Bible and show you it's no mystery how God has spoken to you, and he wants you to know how you can enter into his family, into his kingdom. Let's pray.